0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear are a sample of Mudrooms' sixth season, which ran from 2016 to 2017. The story you're about to hear was told in September of 2016. The theme was Chichaco.
1: Tonight's next speaker is Nico Bus. (laughs) Nico Bus is by now considered a sourdough, but when he moved here from the Netherlands in 1975, he was a real Chichaco. Born into a family of construction workers, Nico was the only one of five siblings who ended up in a white-collar job. He was lured to Juneau from the bustling European city, The Hague, by his future wife, Susan, herself a Chachaco, a Los Angeles transplant who was hired by the U.S. Forest Service the first year they hired women on field crews. He has since built a wil- wilderness cabin and peed in the Yukon River, <laughs> two undisputed criteria in becoming a sourdough. An avid soccer player, Nico helped start the Juno Soccer Club and coached many a youth soccer player. Now retired after 30 plus year career with the state, he drives tour buses in the summer. Yes, Nico Bus, the bus driver. (laughs) And travels frequently in the fall and spring to explore America's many beautiful national parks and historical places. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Nico Bus.
2: Well, good evening. My name is Nico, and uh, I was at Chichaco in 1976. Before that, I had lived in Holland, minding my business like Dutch people do. I was tending to the tulip fields, <laughs> milking the cows, getting all the cheeses that I wanted, drinking my Heineken, and going after that little boy, giving him a break, putting my finger in the dike. And then If I wasn't bicycling, I would try to ice-skate on the canals next to the windmills. (laughs) I had a great time until I got a little note from my cousin in America. He says, I have this college friend, she's coming to Holland. Could you show her around? Well, I'm really glad he did that because this young lady was really fantastic, very adventurous, full of humor, and we hit it off right away. I showed her around Europe. She asked me to come to Juneau, Alaska. I go, where is that? So I came here, fell in love with this area. She came back to Holland one more time. And I decided I need to figure out if this relationship is going to work. So I quit my real job, which was an accountant for a CPA firm. And I moved to Juneau, Alaska. Now, mind you, I was on a tourist visa, which means you're not allowed to work for pay. So I had a little savings account, and I tried to stretch that savings as much as I could. Now, one thing you need to do when you get to Juno is make sure that you have cheap housing, because it's really, really expensive. So the way I did that, I uh, negotiated with this church to become their janitor. And in trade, I lived in the loft at the end of this uh, (laughs) building for one year, so cheap. I'm Dutch, okay. (laughs) So uh, the other thing, in order to stretch my savings further, I decided in Europe, the way they teach young people to do a skill, they do an apprentice program. So I thought I'd use that model and tell people in Juneau that if they wanted a young, energetic, foolish person working for almost nothing, they could either take me on a fishing trip buy me a meal or give me a stipend to get gas or whatever. So, word got out and uh, I got busy. Some of the things I ended up doing, I volunteered, for instance, in Tenneke, which I had heard was gonna build a bridge. So that was great, I went to Tenneke and built a bridge over the Indian River, sat in the hot tub, drank beer, it was a great thing. But one of the things I really liked to do was fall trees because that was real Alaskan, right? Now that opportunity was offered to me when an elderly couple called and inquired if I could fall a hazardous tree in their yard. I didn't know what a hazardous tree meant, but I said, you know, do you know, I don't really have any experience, but if you want them to try me, I'll be happy to do that. <laughs> Provided that you bring me the chainsaw because I don't own one. So. So they asked me to come out to their home, which was on the beach past Oak Bay. Beautiful place, right on the beach. Really expensive home. So here I understood why it's called a hazardous tree. <laughs> so the tree is leaning towards the house. Really expensive house on one side, and on the other side, it's leaning towards the power lines. So being young and foolish, I said, "Okay, I'll do it." <laughs> and so. The owner shows me how to operate the chainsaw, <laughs> and he leaves for work. <laughs> so I'm standing there, scratching my head, going, what did that girl get myself into? Well, being an accountant, you know, you use your brain, right? So I did the math, I stepped out the length of the tree in its shadow, and I figured, The tree was twice as long as the distance between the tree and the house. So I could not follow it that direction or to the power line. The only option I had was to cut the tree in half. Wow, good plan of attack. How do you do that? Well, I looked for a ladder, put the ladder against the tree and hit the midway. I go, great. So now, how do I cut the tree? I have only two hands and you need to pull the trigger and push pressure on it. And just recently, I bought a chainsaw, and it has a manual. And in the manual, there's little diagrams. And one of the diagrams is, never put a ladder against a tree and use a chainsaw. <laughs> well, I just did that. I climbed the tree, and then I thought, it would really be handy to have one of those harnesses you see in the uh, logging days where these guys hang back, and you know they can use two ends. But I figured, I'm young and strong, I use one hand, use the chainsaw, hang on to the tree or the ladder. So I just did that. And as I was trying to make the undercut, the the chainsaw is right in front of my face. No goggles, no earmuffs, and it's buzzing right in front of my eyes. Well, chips flying everywhere. I made the undercut, and then I go, well, I hope I did the math right. I never thought about the liability, because in Holland they don't sue anybody, but here you can get in big trouble if you damage somebody's property, right? I knew I couldn't fall to the power lines, because that would alarm all the neighbors, they lose their electricity. So I start pushing the tree when I was just about to go, and I pushed and pushed and pushed, and it fell right towards the house. Oh no, I hope I did my math right. Climbed down the tree, walked to the front door, And I did my math right, the good accountant in me, the tree was that far from the front door. (laughs) I quickly limped all the branches, bucked up the top of the tree, cut the bottom, made all nice rounds, put it in this gentleman's woodshed, cleaned it up, and when he came home, he was impressed. Driver was clean, tree was gone, pile branches one side, woodshed full. And he paid me a really nice compliment, he said, Not bad for Chichaco. (laughs) So, before the end of my tourist visa, we decided to get married. We have been married for 40 years. We have a wonderful family in Juneau. Our son and his wife, Leon and Torin, live in Juneau. Alida lives here, and I'm proud to be a Junoite. Thank you for listening to my Chichaco story. (laughs)
0: The story you're about to hear was told in October of 2016. The theme was Skeletons in the Closet.
3: Our first speaker tonight is Guy Carcroft. Guy grew up in eastern Washington and married his high school sweetheart, Martha. They moved to Juneau in 1981 with a one-year-old daughter, three suitcases, and $185. He and Martha have been together 39 years and have three children and two grandchildren. He worked for the state for 32 years in procurement for Department of Revenue and Department of Admin, and on the Iris project before retiring in August, and now serves as the executive director of Love Inc. Guy likes to travel, he likes running, bowling, and driving around drinking coffee with his wife in search of garage sales. (laughs) He has jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, driven the wrong way down a one-way street in Manhattan, and won a dress like a nerd contest. When people ask him how he's doing, he says, live in the dream. So please welcome Guy.
4: Hi, my name's Guy Crocroft. My dad was Gaylord Crocroft, and my mother was Sylvia Crocroft. At least, that's what I believed for 56 years. Six months ago, I saw a show called Long Lost Family, inspiring stories about adoptees reuniting with their birth families. It touched me deeply, to my soul, to my spirit, and I remembered that my mother had once told me I was adopted, but I didn't believe it, because I had my birth certificate that had her name on it, and my dad's name on it. Years later, after they passed away, my aunt sent me a family tree, and that said I was adopted too, but I still didn't believe it. But now, I just had to find out. So I did some internet research, and I found myself staring at a link that sent chills up and down my spine. It said, order your original pre-adoption birth certificate. I didn't know there was such a thing. Well, it came in the mail, and I stared at it like a deer in headlights. And it told me my real mother's name was Mary Margaret Johnson from Boise, who was 16. And I thought, Mary Johnson, I'll never find her. Why can't she have a weird name like Mary Crockcroft? <laughs> well, uh, there was no father listed and no first name or middle name for me. So I wasn't Guy Crockcroft. I was baby boy Johnson in desperate search of his mother. And so I hired the Salvation Army who ran the hospital that I was born in to find my mother. A couple weeks later, they called and said, I think we found the right person. And I was amazed and intrigued, and then I heard nothing for like three weeks. And I thought, well, they said they were going to send her a letter. Did she not get it? Is she sick? Does she just not want to talk to me? And I wondered. And then I got the call. We found your mother. She's alive. She wants to talk to you. And I was overwhelmed. And they gave me her phone number, and as I punched in the numbers, I said, well, what what do you say to the mother you've never met? And I said, she answered, hello, this is Mary. I said, hi, Mom. This is your, <laughs> this is your son, Guy Krocroft. How are you? And she said, I'm great. I'm so glad to hear your voice. And you called me Mom. And I'm so glad you found me. And I only saw you for an hour, and they took you away. And you were gone without a trace until now. And I said, what's my name? And she said, Sean Paul. S-E-A-N. I said, who's my dad? She said, Jack Kaper, K-A-P-E-R. I think he's still around Boise. You could Google him. <laughs> and so I did. And I found his phone number right away, called up. The lady answered, hello? And I said, well, how do you start this conversation? <laughs> now, uh, my internet research told me dad was into running, and so am I. And so I said, uh, well, she got him, and he says, Hello. And I heard the voice of my real father for the first time. I said, uh, hello, this is Guy Crocroft. I'm a runner with the Southeast Roadrunners here in Juneau, Alaska. And I run a couple of marathons and some half marathons. And are you still involved with that race to Roby Creek? And he says, Oh, yeah, it's a great race. I've run it many times. And so we talked about running, and finally I said, I'm glad we have running in common, but that's not the real reason I called you. I'm 56. I just found out I was adopted, and my real mother's name is Mary Margaret Johnson. And he said, well, hello, son. <laughs> he said, I- I've always thought about you, and I hope to meet you someday. How did you find me? And I said, well, mom gave me your name last night, and I went to the internet, and there was your phone number. And he said, well, well, how is your mom? I said, well, she sounded fine. I haven't met her yet. Uh, <laughs> He says, well, what's your phone number? So I gave him mom's phone number. And then I thought, maybe I should ask mom about that first. So I called up mom. Hello, mom. I talked to dad. You did? Really? Already? Yeah. How is he? Well, he's fine. Uh, He asked about you. And I gave him your phone number. Is that okay? She says, oh, yeah, that's fine. What's his number? So they hadn't talked to each other for 50 years. So I was real anxious to go see them both. So on July 11th, three months ago today, I flew down to Boise to meet them. Now, I'd seen pictures. Mom had dark hair, beautiful eyes, an angelic smile, looked much younger than 72. My dad had long gray hair, a long gray beard, and a cheerful grin on his face. He looked like Santa Claus, only with my face. And so I w- as I was walking out of airport security, I put on a name tag that said, hello, my name is Sean Paul. <laughs> and I saw them through the glass. And they saw me, and they jumped up. And I burst through the door and threw my bag down. And I looked into my mother's face for the first time. And I saw her green eyes. They were my green eyes. And they were filled with tears of joy, just like mine. We fell into each other's arms. And I said, Mom, you're my mother. I love you, Mom. She said, I love you, son. Thank you for coming. Thank you for finding us. And we hugged and we cried. And then I looked at my dad and I said, dad, you're my real father. I love you, dad. He said, I love you, son. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. And we held each other and we cried and we hugged. And I thank God for the miracle of reuniting me with my mother and father. And I had my cell phone. And there was a guy standing there, and I said, hey, can you take a picture of us? This is mother, father, and son together for the first time ever, and I just turned 56. (laughs) And he said, wow, that's awesome, sure. And he did. It's my favorite picture.
0: The story you're about to hear was told in November of 2016. The theme was Family Matters.
1: Our first speaker tonight is Christy Heron. Christy has lived in Alaska for the last 35 years, but she was originally born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. As part of a very large extended Irish Catholic family, she spent every weekend holiday and summer vacation with grandparents aunts and uncles, and cousins, celebrating birthdays, anniversaries, baptisms, confirmations, and whatever else could be used as an excuse to get together. There were just two times during these years when her family took off on its own to take a camping vacation to Expo 67 in Montreal, Canada, and to take a tour of the national parks of the western states. It was during these trips that she realized that there was a big world out there beyond Iowa and after graduating from college, she moved west to take a seasonal job at the Park Service in Montana. She spent the next several years as a Park Service seasonal, which culminated in her getting a job at the Klondike Gold Rush Historic Park in Skagway. And that is where her story tonight begins. Please welcome to the stage, Christy Heron.
5: I met Chaz in May of 1981 when I went to Skagway to be a backcountry ranger on the Chilkoot Trail. He was one of the other trail rangers and uh, it wasn't long before we became much more than just co-workers. We had a fabulous summer uh, working and playing together and we decided we wanted to spend the winter together traveling in New Zealand. So we set about getting our tickets, and we came across an ad from Pan American Airlines advertising a two-for-the-price-of-one airline ticket to Auckland, New Zealand for $800. And this is a fabulous deal, and so we jumped right on it, and we got our tickets. And when we were reading the ad, we did notice the little part at the bottom that said, you must be related in order to get this fare. But they never asked us if we were related when we got our tickets. So we figured it probably wasn't important. So fall comes and we start driving uh, down. It's a nice long drive. We have lots of time to plan and dream about all the great things we're going to do when we get to New Zealand. But we also have lots of time to think about and start worrying a little bit about whether or not we should be worried about this need-to-be-related requirement. We don't want to call Pan Am and say, hey, did you really mean that that? So instead, we call my mom, and we ask her to ask her friend, the travel agent, uh, whether or not he thought this was going to be a problem. And uh, he said that, um, you know, if it's a requirement of getting the ticket, and you show up there with your tickets and your passports with different last names, they're definitely gonna ask for proof that you're related. So now we're really worried, but we don't really know what to do. I mean, what can we do? So we just keep driving towards LA, which is where we're flying out of, and pretty soon we're driving through Nevada. <laughs> and as we go through Lake Tahoe, we see the little chapel by the lake on the side of the road. So we pull into the parking lot and we have a long and really serious discussion about whether or not it would be a good idea for us to get a little quickie wedding and then just get it annulled when we came back. So. Neither one of us ever wanted to be married, and we'd only known each other for six months, and so we figured it probably wasn't that good of an idea, really, uh, if we were going to be really getting married, but that it might actually be an okay business proposition. (laughs) So we decide if we just... We can go inside and we'll see. And if it's not too expensive, we'll go ahead and get married. And then when we come back, neither one of us will contest the uh, annulment. And we will never, ever, ever tell anyone what we've done. (laughs) So we shake hands on it. And we go inside. The minister comes out, and we ask him how much it costs to get married. And he says, oh, $50. And we look at each other and go, wow, 50 bucks. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, well, OK, we'll get married. And he asks us when we want to get married. And we're like, oh, now would be good. If that works for you, it works for us. And so he goes and he gets his wife to be our witness and they come back out and we proceed to get married in our blue jeans and flannel shirts and we're in the field of daisies diorama (laughs) and we walk out the door, marriage certificate in hand. It's like, woohoo, problem solved. So we get in the car, and we drive to the airport, and we check in, and everything goes smoothly, and we fly to New Zealand, and we're there for three and a half months, hiking, and backpacking, and having all sorts of great adventures, and falling deeper and deeper in love throughout the whole time. So then that's over, time to go back to work, we get back to Skagway, we talk to each other about the fact that it's now time to get an annulment, but You know, we don't know anything about getting an annulment, you know. know, And it's hard to find information in Skagway that time of year, and we're busy, and we're very happy, so we just let it slide. And we let it slide for a year. At which point, I'm feeling terribly guilty, because I'm really close with my family, especially my mother, and I've never kept any, well, hardly anything from them. (laughs) Especially nothing this big, and so it's time for us to make a decision. So we start thinking about it. It's like you know, this isn't going to be an annulment. I mean, it's been way too long, and this marriage has certainly been uh, consummated. So um, we're really talking about divorce. But you know, we're happy and in love, and divorce seems weird. So. We decided, okay, we just need to be married then, and we need to tell people. But being married seemed weird also, because, well, many of you know, usually when you get married, you sort of have a ceremony and you commit to each other in the rest of your life, and, you know, we hadn't done that. We committed to a cheap airline ticket and, and three and a half months together. So our solution was we would have a wedding ceremony. We'd have our own wedding ceremony, we didn't need to do the the legal thing, because that was already all taken care of. So we have a ceremony, Uh, we invite our friends and family, Um, we tell my mother the truth before we get married, she cries, she's heartbroken. We tell Chaz's parents they're ecstatic. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly because it meant we weren't living in sin up to that point. So we had our own wedding ceremony where we committed to each other and to our lives together. It's not a path that we would recommend to young couples starting out today, but we were lucky and it's worked out really well for us. And in just two weeks we'll be celebrating what we call our 33 slash 35 wedding anniversary. And just one more thing, Pan Am never asked us for proof that we were related.
0: <laughs> the story you're about to hear was told in December of 2016. The theme for the evening was What's Cooking?
3: So, our last speaker for the evening is Mark Wheeler. Mark is a former park ranger, trail builder, conservation organizer, deputy mayor, consultant, nonprofit director, researcher, and Mudroom Storyboard member. Yes, you guessed it, he was an English major. (laughs) Mark now owns a local ice cream and coffee shop with his wife, Jessica Paris, further confirming his college major, and tries not to embarrass his children, Celia and Ferguson, too much. Mark is proud to call Juno home since 1995. Please welcome Mark.
6: Thank you. Ice cream is my jam. If I was an artist, cream and milk and sugar would be my palette. You can do anything with ice cream. But I'm not going to bore you with tales of ice creams that I made like Herring Roe ice cream or... Caramelized onion, which is actually Oral Landell's favorite ice cream But I'm going to talk about our little family business and what it means to me today It was May 2013 I was going through a traumatic layoff. I was losing my 12-year career with big brothers big sisters all because a Texan with a too-large ego was moving my job to Irving with a lot of other jobs. I was lost and confused and I was really hurt and then my friend Clint says, hey, did you hear the song sushi building is getting renovated? And the landlord wants to put in a coffee shop. Boom, that's what I was gonna do next. I just knew it in my bones. I was gonna run a coffee shop and we'd make ice cream because I like to make ice cream. I actually started making rhubarb sherbet commercially right there in that kitchen. And Judy Knight uh, put up with me and my dirty dishes. So I had this idea, and Jessica just happened to be on her first sea kayaking trip in a decade. So my idea had plenty of room and time to take root and grow. And when she got back from sea working out, I started my relentless lobbying campaign. Wasn't it gonna be great? Just think how much money we're gonna make off those four dollar mochas. <laughs> After 20 years of nonprofit work, I was ready to make some money. But she was smarter than that. She saw through the mirage of easy money through coffee. But I was persistent, and I gradually wore her down. September 2013, four months later, building plans were done, electrical work installed, plumbing installed, equipment purchased, two baristas hired. We opened in September 2013. And I was not of sound mind. Really. I had a prescription to prove it. Anyway. And it was going to be great. I hadn't taken any barista training, all the ice cream making I knew from cookbooks, but it was going to be perfect, right? <laughs> Thankfully, we had people like Chris Knight, who came every day and put up with my bad espresso shots and my too cold milk foam, because he wanted to see us succeed. We had two great baristas we first hired, Katie and Nikki, and they had a magic touch with the customers, Nancy Hemingway Nancy spent hours and hours testing recipes and came up with our our baked goods and our bakery, and I didn't want to have a bakery, (laughs) but Nancy made it happen. And we had friends like Barbara Craver, who came every day too, because they wanted us to succeed. But then winter rolled around, I started to lose employees, and I was working 60 or 70 hours a week on my feet. And I was worried, I would blown through my severance. I didn't know if we were gonna make it. We'd have to make it off of what little the business would produce in Jessica's salary, and thank God for her health insurance. I got irritable, and I was not much fun to be around. But then gradually, it took shape. And my management style of just making it up as, as I go along <laughs> didn't run us out of business. We hired some great kitchen staff, and, Carrie and Isaac really fleshed out our menu and made us consistent and solid in the kitchen. And thanks to a grand I even got to go to barista class. And we sent India off to barista camp. So our coffee got much, much better. And then last year, I think it was in May, a young man wrapped himself in the Confederate flag, went to a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered nine innocent people. And I remember being in this church a week later and imagining what that would have been like if that would have happened here. So I felt I had to do something, and it always bothered me to see the Mississippi flag on Egan Drive with its symbol of institutional racism. I knew others felt the same way, so we got together at COPA and we organized. And I realized then that COPA could be a meeting place and a place to organize for the community. We worked hard, and we prevailed thanks to support from 300 community leaders, our entire general legislative delegation, and the Friends of the Flags agreed and took the flag down. I think I saw Jim Carroll tonight. Thank you, Jim. But along the way, I got singled out. It was my picture on the front page and the back page, and people came after me. and came after COPA. I didn't know what an internet troll was before this happened, but they struck, and they struck hard. They threatened to boycott our business. They wrote nasty reviews on social media, threatening our rankings. They even went so far as to say they were gonna make up anti-Copa bumper stickers and paste them all around town. I really thought we were gonna get a brick thrown through our window. And just gonna really shaken up. But then a beautiful thing happened. Our friends and our customers rallied behind us. I started posting glowing reviews on social media, drowning out all the haters. David Katzi came to our business and one quiet Saturday morning, he performed a clinket ceremony and hung a protective Devil's Club branch above our front door. And that fall, the Juno Empire did its annual survey and we were voted best business in all of Juno. So you see, love overcomes hate. It really does. And as I've grown into the business, I've realized that this business is not just about making money. This business is an extension of myself and our family values. And we love being a place for the community to gather. We love hosting events like the kids' open mic night a few, years, a few weeks ago. We have great customers. Um, last week, a man and his wife, they brought their kids to celebrate because they just adopted them in the federal courthouse. We have customers tell us their joys and their sorrows. Sometimes they break down right at the counter and we comfort them with a hug or a smile or a free cup of coffee. And they help us back. They bring us their favorite plum cake recipe, they bring us homemade sausage. Even Dave Haas brings us his hand-picked nagoon berries every year. Last week, our customers in one day donated $2,000 to one of our baristas for our emergency medical fund. Now, I'm not as worried anymore about how my political views might affect the business. Well, maybe a little bit. Um, But Jessica and I were so worried and concerned about the misogyny in the media that we decided to make a nasty woman ice cream. We thought we might get some hate, but we knew our customers would enjoy it and we could help the aware shelter at the same time. And it brought in many more women customers to our business. It's, it's just not all about making money. There's more things that are important. There's community, there's our youth, there's social justice, investing in your employees, even though they're, they're gonna leave you probably in a year. These things are what's important. And I love this town. I cherish my wife, I adore my kids, and I love myself. I love this, like my arms and my feet, I love this extension of myself, this little business called COPA. Thank you.
0: You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms. Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded during Mudroom's sixth season at the Northern Light United Church. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. The story you're about to hear was told in January of 2017. The theme was letting go.
3: Okay, our next speaker tonight is Linda Buckley. Linda has lived in Alaska for decades. This year, she let go of the family home in Fritz Cove and moved to Star Hill, finally becoming a townie. She has always been a townie at heart and now loves walking to some of her favorite coffee shops, theaters, and art events. She also let go of her father this year, who lived to the ripe old age of 99. But tonight, Linda will share her story of the most difficult letting go of her life. It happened in the 60s on the island of Kauai. Please welcome Linda.
7: Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life, longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. So I told the story for the last time, anchored up off the coast of Canada with a bunch of girlfriends, actually two girlfriends. We were taking a boat from Alaska to the San Juan Islands, and we had a layover day. And the skipper said, let's tell our deepest, darkest secret. Linda, you go first, (laughs) of course. So I told this story of myself in the 60s on Kauai, far away from my very strict Baptist family where I had been really, the people that know me in Juneau probably thought I was a hippie, no. I carried my Bible to high school. You know, my whole life was around the church Uh, all through college. I went to a a religious college as well. And then I was in Hawaii. You know, that was in the 60s. That was like going to the moon for me. And there were movie stars there. I met Elvis Presley. I mean, it was really exciting. But anyway, I fell in love, you know, with a local guy. And it was kind of like Peace Corps for me. I mean, it was so culturally interesting, especially if you're hanging out with a local guy. He taught me how to spear fish for lobster with lanterns at night. We ate two-finger poi. We popped limpets off of rocks and washed them down with primo beer. I had never drank either. That was another thing. No dances, no, no drinking, n- no makeup, no movies. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I was drinking beer. I was going to the movies. <laughs> And I was in love with a guy who lit the the tiki lamps at the Coco Palms Resort and wore a little thingy (laughs) and and was on all the postcards. I mean, he was the quintessential most beautiful Hawaiian man ever. And he was 11 years older, very experienced. (laughs) And he would play his ukulele, you know, in the moonlight and he'd sing. A morning dew, Ali mai, Ali mai. You know, I wanted to say you had me at Two Finger Poi, but it was that song, I Got Pregnant. It's one thing they don't teach you. When you're raised in a very religious home in that, that era, you can't go to movies or shows or things, but lots of things happen in the back of Plymouth's, Dodge <laughs> Chevrolet's, and on the beaches in Hawaii. So, I panicked because I thought I can't let my parents know. I just didn't want to disappoint them. And I just thought, okay, you know, you can't really hide a pregnancy, you know, maybe the first three months or so. So I thought, okay, well, they, I had a job and they didn't expect, you know, that I would be home until summer. So I decided to give the baby up for adoption. And I did, you know, at that time, you signed away any rights to know this child. And um, on July 16th, I had a baby boy. He weighed seven pounds, 12 ounces. And literally, I saw, you know, his head and his black hair. And then I never saw him. And as I was telling the story, remember now, I'm not in Hawaii. I'm on this boat off the coast of Canada. And I told my girlfriends that um, on July 16th, he would be 35. And that um, if there was one thing on my bucket list, it was to know that he had a good life, you know, to know that he was alive. But I said, you know, in a couple of weeks, you know, it will be his birthday. and We finished that cruise, and on July 16th, that summer, I was in Santa Cruz attending a wedding of some really close friends here in Juneau. And there was a big reception and lots of people and lots of music. And when I came home there were 11 messages on my voicemail. And the seventh message said, hi, this is Bruce Hoffman. I'm calling about an event we shared on July 16th. Call me. And it was, first of all, I've never heard of this person. It was a North Carolina area code and I don't know anyone in North Carolina. So I decided I must have met him at the reception in California. So I deleted the message And thankfully, three days later, (laughs) he called again. And he said, um, he said, hi, this is Bruce Hoffman. Did you get my message? And I said, yeah, do I know you? And he said, you tell me. And I said, I hate that game. No, I don't think I know you. (laughs) I said, he said, well, we shared an event on July 16th. And I said, "Um, were you at the wedding in Santa Cruz? He said, no. I said, are you a telemarketer? (laughs) You can imagine how hard this is for him. And he took a deep breath and he said, we shared an event on July 16th in Hawaii. I said, are you my son? (laughs) He said, are you my mother? And of course I was. And uh, so I learned from that when you completely let go of something, I had really let go of ever knowing him. And a month later met um, in New England. His wife um, has a family home there. And uh, it turned out I was an instant grandmother. Peter was four, Nick was five, and Matthew was three months old. And I held Matthew on this hot New England night. This little three-month-old baby boy with his little, you know, cheek and that smell of a, of a, the, the, the a very unique smell of a new baby. And I looked at his father, who I never got to hold. And I, I just whispered a prayer of gratitude. Thank you. Yeah.
0: The story you're about to hear was told in March 2017. The theme was Rude Awakenings.
1: Our next speaker is Tom Waldo. Tom is an environmental lawyer and has lived in Juneau for 27 years. He and his wife have two grown sons who are making it on their own in the lower 48. Tom loves skiing, snowboarding, hiking, running, and kayaking around Juneau. He rides his bike to work every day and always wears a helmet. Please welcome Tom to the stage.
8: Are you okay? Hey, are you okay? That's what I heard as I was rudely awakened by two guys shaking me. I found myself lying in the middle of a street next to a twisted bicycle, which I had apparently crashed. There were a couple bags of belongings scattered all around me like a yard sale. I was dazed, but I sat up and I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay." They fell for it. they, they helped me out of the street. They got my bike and my belongings out of the street for me. I thanked them. And it was only as they were driving away that the strange fact dawned on me that we had been speaking to each other in Swedish. Since when do I speak Swedish? Where am I? Complete blank. So I just sat there on that grassy street corner for a long time, trying to get my bearings. This was way before Google Maps or cell phones or any technology that might help. I mean, this was before bike helmets. (laughs) So I just sat there, and I looked slowly up and down the street. I looked at each of the houses one by one, no memory. I read the street names on the street crossing signs, Swedish, but still nothing. Despite all the evidence, I started to have this feeling that I just, I didn't think I was in Sweden. It it didn't make any sense, but I started, I I, I came to believe that I was in a town called Mariaham. Mariaham is the capital of the Oland Islands which are a little Swedish-speaking province of Finland out in the middle of the Baltic Sea. Well, this just raised more questions than it answered. (laughs) What makes me think I'm in the Åland Islands? (laughs) Whoever heard of the Åland Islands? I still don't know how I learned Swedish, but finally something came to me. Neptunigatan 52 Bay. Neptunigatan 52 Bay. It was an address. 52B Neptune Street. It it sounds better in Swedish. Um, (laughs) I knew it was somewhere in Mariaham. I had no idea what I would find there, but it was all I had to go on. So I set out in search of it. My bike was a total loss, so I just left it. But Mariahamn is a pretty small town, so after maybe 20 minutes of walking, I found the address. turned out to be a hotel, a small hotel, called the Yesthem Kronan, and I had another fragment of memory. I was married to a gal named Anitra, and I, I had a good feeling that she was at this hotel. she would be able to clear everything up. So, with new optimism, I marched up to the front door, and I knocked. It was a hotel. I don't know why I didn't just walk in, but I knocked, and a woman came to the door. Not Anitra, but an older woman, and when she saw me, she went, I hadn't been focusing on my appearance. I had Blood and gravel ground into the abrasions on my face. My hair was matted. My shirt was torn. My pants were torn. Still, her reaction caught me by surprise, which I really didn't need just then. But uh, I I soldiered on and started trying to explain. The problem was I wasn't firing on all cylinders and I still didn't know what was going on myself. I discovered my Swedish wasn't actually very good. So I'm floundering. I'm not making any sense. This poor woman is looking at me like I just crawled out of the grave. But finally, I managed to say, and I think my wife might be here. Her name is Anitra. Immediately, without taking her eyes off me, she bellowed, Anitra! I learned later that she was the proprietor of the hotel, and Anitra was trying to make a good first impression because it was Anitra's first day at her new job at the hotel. (laughs) So it was just a few more seconds, and to my huge relief, Anitra appeared at the door. She went, (gasps) (laughs) but she confessed that yes, The man bleeding on the doorstep and babbling nonsense in bad Swedish was her husband. They let me in the hotel and laid me down in one of the beds where Anitra started treating my wounds and helping me reconstruct my memories. I learned that Anitra and I had been married for less than a year and had spent that time in a Swedish-speaking community in a different part of Finland which is where we had picked up the language. We had decided to spend our summer in the Oland Islands and so had moved out to Ham just the day before my crash. My theory about why I remembered the address of that hotel is that we had figured out that the cheapest way to move all our stuff out to Ham was to mail it in boxes. So I had written down the ad- that address a bunch of times on mailing labels just two or three days earlier. That was 1985. Anitra and I haven't been back to Olan since that summer, but we're going back later this year. So we looked up the Tem Kronon, Anitra's hotel. It's still a popular place to stay in Mardia Ham, and they offer one service they didn't have 32 years ago. They now rent bikes and the price includes a helmet. (laughs) Thank you.
0: The story you're about to hear was told in May 2017. The theme was subsistence and survival.
3: Our last speaker for this evening is Greg Smith. Greg was born and raised in Juneau. After a 10-year hiatus from Juneau, where he lived in Oregon, Hawaii, and Central America, Greg returned to town in 2013. He currently works as a staffer for the Alaska House Majority Coalition. When he's not at work, you can find him running, swimming, or doing something related to food, cooking, foraging, gardening, and hunting. Please welcome Greg.
9: Thank you. Uh, so this last year, I went to my first trip to Asia, to the Philippines. Super excited, beautiful place, heard about great beaches and really friendly, um, and also it was a chance to connect with a place that has a strong connection to Juno. And so as I was kind of planning my trip and figuring out where I wanted to go and looking at pictures and all this stuff, one thing I got really excited was how many miles can I get on this trip, you know? It's like a third of the way around the world, and so I spent hours trying to like figure this out and get like the perfect blend of like cost and convenience and mileage, you know. So I finally found this trip, um, this ticket, June to Seattle, Seattle, Dallas, Fort Worth, change to American there, fly to Hong Kong and then go to Manila on like a regional carrier. So a few days before I'm packing and everything and I had gotten out my camping backpack and my hunting backpack and so a little step back. So I just started hunting a couple of years ago um, I never hunted when I was a kid, and, but I'm really into it, you know, being out in the woods and like slowing down and getting a chance to kind of like get in touch with nature. I mean, these last couple of weeks I've been grouse hunting instead of practicing for mudrooms. But anyway, just, you know, just love it. And I think part of it also is that like there's this hope that in case of nuclear war or like catastrophic global climate change or like zombie apocalypse, like maybe just maybe I could kind of survive. But from my experience, I think I would be really skinny because the main things I get when I go hunting are edible mushrooms when I'm out hunting for deer. (laughs) Anyway, so finally pack my bag, have everything kind of ready to go. My friend whose mom is from the Philippines had given me a bag for her to to take over for friends and for gifts and stuff. Anyway, get to the airport, check things through and because their partner airline they say oh we can check it all the way to Hong Kong and so that was great and then you know then like airport survival starts where you're like okay what's the fastest TSA line and like how can I find food for under 20 bucks and why are all these people wearing masks should I have a mask <laughs> what's going on you know so finally you know fly long days long flight Fort Worth to Hong Kong is the longest flight in the American Thing you know, sixteen hours. You fly up over Alaska and down through Russia and everything. So get there and everything's working out well. Like I have plenty of time. Uh, I've you know I'm like okay, I've done this right as I'm walking through um, getting my bags. And so I go to check in, and the woman at the regional airlines like, oh, you can only check one bag, but just carry that backpack through. I was like okay, great. So I'm standing in security, and then I see as my bags going through the X-ray, they pull it aside, and as they're going to, like, some of the pockets, I see them pull this little, my deer call out of um, my hip belt pocket. And I was like, what's the problem with the deer call? And then, of course, it wasn't the problem with the deer call, it was the problem with the two 30-30 rifle rounds that were in that pocket with the deer call. You know, so they look at me, and I look at them, and it's, you know, and they're like, that way, and their their TSA goes over, and You know, first it's them and the questions, you know, are these your bullets and do you have a gun and what are you doing and that kind of thing. And then the cops come and they ask me the same questions and then the detective comes and then then there's the SWAT team and then the rest of the SWAT team and there's, like, 15 people with guns all around me and I was like, want a selfie so bad, but, you know, like, not wise, right? So they're asking me all these questions and laughing at these like tiny pink speedo swim trunks that i had brought you know it was (laughs) like great just like loving it and from that conversation i learned two things that one um hong kong police cannot fathom and are super appalled that in the united states we do not need a permit or a license for ammunition or a gun and two that they just had no idea what a job of lobbyist was just so, anyway, then, it, am I gonna catch my flight? You know, and they're like, definitely not. Go get the other bag, and as I start to realize that I have no idea what's in this other bag, you know, I didn't look at all, and I was like, you know, it was like endangered species, or like bricks of contraband or something, and, but thankfully it was just like the survival essentials, you know, towels and coffee and Toblerone and stuff. So anyway, go to the police station, in my mind, my main concern is like am I going to be here for a long time or are they ripping me off or whatever, but actually not too bad for the wear. I mean, I lost 300 bucks, spent five hours there, probably lost a couple more minutes of my life when up on the wall that, in the room I was in, there was a step-by-step illustrated guide on how to give a strip search. <laughs> but I left unviolated, made it, made it on the rest of my trip, and it was awesome. And, you know, so being over there and just one thing I remember is being like thinking how grateful I am to be in a place where we get to do more than survive. We can, you know, fulfill our dreams and like thrive. And, you know, in terms of food, like our problem with food is probably that we eat too much of it, but just so thankful. And also on my trip, I learned that the Hong Kong authorities are super legit. It wasn't a trick at all, you know. (laughs) Anyway, they called me, and I started getting these calls when I got back to town, late night, random number, and it was someone from Hong Kong asking for me to send a photo of my uh, hunting license so they could verify and send it over, and they sent me an email back actually just a couple of weeks ago that says, your bail money is now available for pickup in Hong Kong. (laughs) And so I'm going to Japan in the fall, so I've started to look for those plane tickets that are just that perfect blend of (laughs) cost, convenience and mileage that also has a stop in hong kong thank you
0: you're listening to ktoo news juno 104.3 fm The stories you just heard were recorded live. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Maniak. Additional help from Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Jeff Smith, Sarah Hannon, and Alita Buss. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.